This sermon today comes from Isaiah 45, 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Years ago in Great Britain, some researchers went door to door asking people about their belief in God. And this was one of the questions that they asked. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, etc., etc.? When they published their study, uh, they titled it with the response they received from one person that was pretty typical of all the responses that they got. And here was the response. No, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. It begs the question, how many of us believe in just the ordinary God? Now, there's, there's two answers to that question. What our lips say and what our lives our lips may profess belief in a God that changes the course of human history, that intervenes into affairs and changes things that happen in history, while our lives may profess belief in a God who is just the ordinary God. And I think we all agree that the, the stress, the anxiety, the worry, the panic, that oftentimes sets into life makes it loud and clear that we don't have a God that's big enough for the issues that we're facing or for the crisis that we're in. That our God is too small. That our God is too ordinary. And this is exactly where God's people found themselves in Isaiah chapter 45. They were in crisis because they were in between two invasions that drastically altered their way of life. They were in between the Babylonian invasion and yet there was another one that was about to come. 
And so everything in them, especially after they had experienced the first invasion, it was incredibly hard. Everything in them was ready to panic when the second one hit. Because when crisis hits, that's the natural response of the human heart is to panic. The question is, what keeps you from panicking in times of crisis? When crisis hits your life, what keeps you from panicking? We're going to find three incredibly important truths about God in this passage. It will keep you from panicking when Christ is there. First, God orchestrates history. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I grasp, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now this is actually an incredibly shocking verse. Here's why. That word anointed is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe the royal line of kings and the line of King David that ultimately would give birth to the ultimate King Jesus Christ. So when the verse opens, thus says the Lord to his anointed, no problem at this point. All is well. This is language that God has used throughout the Old Testament of his various kings. What's shocking is whom the Lord applies this title to. He says, to my anointed Cyrus. Now, who was Cyrus? This is Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian king and conqueror. You say, okay. What was Cyrus's relationship to God? Verse 4. I, God, call you Cyrus by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. God called this Gentile, unbelieving king who didn't know him to accomplish his purpose, which was to invade Babylon and set God's people free and return them back to their home in Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Cyrus was God's anointed, an unbelieving king. We didn't know him. Look what God says about Cyrus in verse 28 of chapter 44. Who said to Cyrus, He is my shepherd. I mean, that's the language that's used of, of kings and ultimately of Jesus. Cyrus is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall she be rebuilt, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Here's the question. Is your God big enough to use an unbeliever to accomplish his purpose in life? Because that's what's happening here with Cyrus and the lives of his people. Now, why did God call Cyrus? Well, there's three incredibly important purpose statements in this passage that lay out why God would call this unbelieving king that didn't know him to accomplish his purpose. Verse 3, I will give you, I, God, will give you Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and the horrors of secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. God orchestrated this 
geopolitical event in human history. So that Cyrus would know who is God. But it goes on. Verse 4. For the sake of, that's the purpose statement, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you Cyrus by your name. So God orchestrated this geopolitical event in human history. Not only for the sake of Cyrus, but for the sake of his people, for the good of his people, to set them free out of exile in Babylon, to go back to their home in Jerusalem, and for the temple to be rebuilt. It's for the good of his people, but not only that, verse 6, so that, here's the purpose statement, so that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God orchestrated this event in human history, not only for Cyrus, not only for the good of his people, but for the nations to come to know who is the one true living God. So in this one event in human history, where Cyrus would invade Babylon, God had purposes that were threefold. Not just purposes here and there, but purposes that were large and big, beyond probably what his people could understand. That's why he was telling it. God is the God of human history, not just of the history of the church. He's the God of human history, which means every event in human history is orchestrated by him to accomplish his purpose. All events have one ultimate cause. They fit into one great purpose, and that is centered on the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And they find their significance in one final victory. At his news conference, the morning after the beginning of the 2003 attack on Iraq, Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld was asked this fairly simple question by a reporter, or he was asked by a reporter, what the reporter said about the failure to follow the war plan. So he's basically saying to Donald Rumsfeld, hey, can you explain this failure to follow the war plan? And Donald Rumsfeld replied dryly, I don't believe you have the war plan. How often do we ask questions like that reporter of God. God, you are not unfolding the plan as I have drawn up. Or you're not even unfolding the plan as I had expected. Or you're not unfolding the plan as I had trained. And God's loving response, and you're going to see as we unfold this, is I don't believe you have the whole plan. God's purposes are so much larger and so much bigger than anything that we can fathom through any event that we experience personally or in world history. 
Years ago, when Kim and I were a part of a ministry that was purposing to reach high school students for Christ, we took a bunch of students down to the Florida Keys for a week. A couple charter buses, half were half the students knew Christ, half didn't. And so we got down there for the week. There was a speaker who would, would present the gospel the whole week, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the big events of the trip was to go snorkeling offshore at a reef. Get on a boat, go a couple miles out and snorkel. Well, we had planned it for early in the week. And the day of the trip, we got a call from the snorkel company saying, hey, trip's canceled. Surf is too choppy, waves are too high. We'll try again tomorrow. So we tell the students, they're disappointed. But we'll try again tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. We get a call from the snorkel company. Hey, trip's canceled again. Surf's too high, it's too choppy, can't go. Anyway, this went throughout the week. And we never went snorkeling. And the kids were devastated. They were frustrated. Final day of the trip, we had our last large session where we invited students to ask questions of the speaker. They had heard the gospel the whole week, and now it was their turn to ask hard questions of the speaker. And I'll never remember, there was a girl that came on the trip. She didn't didn't know Christ, but was really coming alive for the gospel throughout the week. And this was the question she asked. I've been asking God all week to calm the waves down so that we could go snorkeling. Why didn't he answer that prayer? And it gave our speaker a great opportunity to share that God is not our personal genie in a bottle. That we get to just request whatever we want. That, that God's purposes include you, but they include so much more. They include you personally, but they include His community of people called the church, whose purposes are so much bigger than we could ever imagine. And it was during the one of the most volatile periods of the economic crisis in 2008. This was a week during which the global stock market declined $7 trillion in value. So panic set in. Back in the way. Panic set in, fear and anxiety. People were full of fear, losing their jobs. They were watching their retirement savings dwindle away. And a pastor by the name of Philip Yancey received a call from a, an editor at Time Magazine. And it was a simple question. He asked the pastor, he said, how should a person pray during a crisis like And he gave some answers and some thoughts on what to pray, but one of his answers was very insightful and striking, and yet it was the hardest one to grasp. He said he suggested the following prayer, God, help me take my eyes off my own problems in order to look with compassion on the problems of others and others whose problems are much more severe than mine. The reason he suggested this prayer is because when the global stock market had crashed and over $7 trillion had been lost, at the very same time, Zimbabwe's inflation rate and increased to a historical number such that if you had saved one million Zimbabwean dollars by Monday, 
On Tuesday, it was worth $158. And the point was, when you hurt, it's real. But there is so much hurt beyond just you in God's people. And at the same time, God's purposes in, in I call it a geopolitical event, but in historical events, God's purposes are so much bigger and so much more complex than, than we can get our hands around. He orchestrates history. That includes uh, historical events, that includes economic crises, global pandemics, rise and fall of leaders. He's orchestrating it all, but not for your personal kingdom or my personal kingdom, but for his kingdom that's centered on Jesus Christ. And so that begs the question, how do you process history? When I say history, I just mean events that unfold. So it could be your personal history, could be national history, global history, whatever. But do you process history, events that unfold, through your personal kingdom or through the kingdom of God? If you process history through the kingdom of God, then that means that certain events that bless you may actually hurt others. And certain events that hurt others may actually bless you. That God's purposes are, are big and grand as He orchestrates history. And then when you understand that, that can prevent the panic from setting in. But that, that leads to the second truth. Not only does God orchestrate history, but He creates calamities. Verse 7 I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamities. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this can be a troubling verse. And I'm seeing some headlines. And you should be not. This can be a very troubling verse. Less troubling than some translations that read create evil instead of create calamities. That word calamity in the Hebrew is used 640 times in the Bible. And it ranges in meaning from a nasty taste all the way to full moral evil. 275 instances of that word mean calamity. And the way you can discern what that word means is from the context. And that's true in many, in many cases in the Bible as you're reading words. And certainly in this passage where God's people are facing historical calamities at the hands of Cyrus, this word means calamity. Right? That God creates calamities. He's not the author of evil. But he uses evil, i.e. creates calamity, to accomplish his purposes. Another way to say it, God's not the author of evil, but he is the publisher of evil. Not the author, but he's the publisher. He uses evil to accomplish his purposes. 
But note in this verse 7, he doesn't just create calamity, he, he makes well-being. So seasons of hardship belong to God. Seasons of blessing belong to God. He creates both. That's what verse 7 says. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Now, why is he telling his people this through the prophet Isaiah? Because they are in between two major historical calamities. The Babylonian invasion by King Nebuchadnezzar that took them into exile, and what has become, which is the Persian invasion by King Cyrus that would take them out of exile. Now, the first invasion by Babylon, just to unpack calamity here, it was awful. King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon came into Jerusalem, tore the temple down. This beautiful temple that, uh, that God's people worshiped in was brought to the ground. And then, and, then, and then ripped all of God's people out of their homeland and brought them to this foreign country. There were atrocities. It was awful. And so now, God's people are right on the verge of another invasion by another king. And can you imagine, had God not prepared them, what they would have felt when this king, Cyrus, came in and invaded? That meant one thing to them. PTSD on the Babylonian invasion. And they know what they knew what happened to them. It was awful. And yet God tells them here. That this plan, this invasion of Persia, wasn't going to send them into another exile. It wasn't going to be a repeat experience and a deeper exile and deeper suffering. He says, no, this invasion is actually going to free you from exile and take you back home to Jerusalem. And the temple is going to be rebuilt. And what's important to understand about this is God created both plans. He created the calamity that sent his people into exile, and now he's going to create the calamity that would return his people from exile and undo what happened in the first exile. God is the creator of both kinds of calamity. The story of Job in the Bible is one long story of calamity. Job suffers tremendously. In fact, he loses all his property. Loses his estate. His children die. And then he completely loses his health. And it's at that point that his wife says to him in Job chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive? Good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Seasons of blessing, seasons of hardship. Both belong to God. He uses evil to accomplish his purposes without being dirty by it. William Perry, in many circles, is known as the father of, father of modern missions. Lived in England, but felt called as a missionary to go to India, which he did in 1793. He was in India for 40 consecutive or 
continuous years, never went back to Asia. He was a prodigious translator. He took the Bible and portions of the Bible and translated it into over a dozen Indian languages to bring the gospel to the Indian people. About 20 years into his service, a raging fire wiped out his printing plant and manufacturing place where he did all of his translating and printing. Completely destroyed all of his printing machines and destroyed most of the manuscripts he had worked on for 20 years to bring the gospel to these Indian people. And this was back in early 1800s, so he did not have all this saved on an external hard drive. Nor did he have printed copies of it. It was lost. Now, how would he respond to this? 20 years of all of this labor wiped out in two hours of a raging fire. How would he respond? He wrote his pastor friend, Andrew Murray in England, and said this, the ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from the discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supportive. I principally dwell upon two ideas. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as He pleases. And we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. Now, that's an example of a calamity. Without a real apparent silver lining. When I say silver lining, I mean good that comes out of it. I had to be hard-pressed to find the, the good that comes out of 20 years' worth of translation material and machines and printers that get wiped out in a two-hour fire. That's what makes William Perry's response so striking. Thanks to God's people. In the story of Isaiah, the calamity of the Babylonian invasion didn't really have a silver lining. I mean, the temple was torn down. They went into exile for 70 years. There was no real silver lining to that. It was just brutal. Now, the second invasion, the Persian invasion, that was a calamity that did have a silver lining. Right? They, they were freed from exile. They returned to their homeland. Their, their temple was rebuilt. And the reality is in our lives that when calamity hits your life, sometimes it has a silver lining. question is, for you, for me, is, do you trust God, even if there's not a silver lining? Do you trust God, or do you trust God contingent upon some sort of good coming out of whatever evil has come upon you? Now, to answer that question, You have to understand who God is. And you have to understand the character of God. Because if you don't, that's just kind of a blind question that says there's some sovereign thing which is making things happen, and I have to just bow the knee to it. 
God doesn't leave this passage at that point. He is going to explain to you his character, who he is. And so, what prevents parents from studying in in times of crisis? It's that God orchestrates history. It's that God creates calamity. But it begs the, the next question, and that is, why did he do this? Look at verse 8. Shower, O heaven, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God is describing here a salvation, a righteousness that's going to shower down like rain upon his people. And in the immediate context, this is a salvation that's going to come through Cyrus, this unbelieving foreign king that's going to free them, send them back home, and not only that, but pay to rebuild the temple. Salvation is coming. And for God's people, this was really hard to accept. Really hard to accept. Here's why. Their history, they had a rich history. During Solomon's kingship, they were, uh, they were blessed. They had a glorious past. They had national independence. They had a standing army. They thought they were in control. At least they thought they were. Everything was really, really good. And now God is saying, the person that is going to free you from your exile is an unbelieving foreign king. And not only is he going to free you and bring you back to Jerusalem, but he's going to pay to have your temple rebuilt. The foreign king. It was probably somewhat humiliating. It was humbling. It's not what they had drawn up. Hard for them to accept. This is a parable of a greater salvation and a greater righteousness that was to come. The Bible is a history of kings that, that came into power and then came out. Came into power, came out. You had the royal line of David. But here God includes Cyrus in this line of kings that would end and find fulfillment in King Jesus arriving to save his people. That righteousness and salvation would be reigned down. But I want you to see the parallels here. Just as it's hard for God's people to accept that Cyrus was the one that was going to deliver salvation, so it was true that when Jesus came, it was very hard for God's people to accept the salvation that Jesus could bring. Right? The incarnation of Jesus, God putting on human flesh was a shock. The virgin birth, the virgin conception, was a scandal. The cross that Jesus died on, that was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And that's why most people abandoned Jesus at the cross. Because there was no way this was God's king to come save his people. There was no way. He was supposed to ride in on a white horse and be a conqueror. And so he's abandoned. Mostly abandoned at the cross. You know, we love to run to extremes to 
either disprove God or to really question God's existence. And one of the things we run to is the problem of this. If God is sovereign and good, then how in the world did that horrible event happen? Right? That's a very common question, and maybe you're here investigating Christianity, and, and that's a question you have. If God is sovereign and good, then how in the world did he allow a horrific event like that to happen? Or even, as we're seeing here, create that kind of calamity? I would actually run to that extreme to do just the opposite. I would run to that extreme to get evidence of why God is sovereign and good. Because it's fair to argue that one of the most vicious evils in human history is the murder of God's own son. In fact, if we're talking about injustice, the trial of Jesus was a joke. It was absolutely unjust how he was treated. And so if you look at even from injustice, one of the greatest injustices committed in history was the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, God created that calamity. The crucifixion, like we, we hear about it when we had Jesus died on the cross. Understand in that time when Jesus died on the cross, and there were many that did. Crucifixion was the way that criminals were put to death. But what happened when he died? Darkness covered the land, thunder. I mean, it was a cataclysmic event that shook the world. Jesus' crucifixion was a calamity event in human history. And God created it. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush Jesus. God crushed his son to save you because he loves you. God created that calamity of an event in human history to accomplish your salvation. Because he loves you. And because he's for you. God created that event to accomplish your salvation. God creates calamity in your life to apply that salvation to you. In other words, salvation comes through calamity. The calamity of the cross but then he creates correct calamity in your life to drive you into that salvation, to drive you to Jesus, to apply that salvation to you. John Piper explains it this way. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next, and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, and I know a number of you, all of us to some degree can say amen. Right? Amen to that. Switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth, and I would add Isaiah 45, is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our head, that God is for us in all these strange times. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is 
find the core. He is creating calamity, managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Thank you. 
but to open it up and to receive what God has for you in it. Because he created that calamity and he created it because he's for you. He's not against you. He's not trying to crush you through it. He's trying to save you. And so he brings that calamity into your life as hard as it may be. And as awful as it was, he created it because he's for you. And he loves you. And he wants to see you grow and flourish and blossom into the image of Jesus Christ. God is for you. He is for you. And the evidence of that is the calamity that he created 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died. And because of that, you can trust. You can trust that he creates calamity in your life now to apply that salvation to you and to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, we believe that you are the sovereign one who does all things. That you create blessings, events of blessing, that you create events of calamity. And you do it all to accomplish your purpose. And your purposes that are, are oftentimes beyond what we can understand or fathom. But Father, we trust you. We trust you because we see that you gave up your best. You gave up your son, Jesus Christ. You created that calamity to accomplish salvation for a people you love. Oh, Father, I pray for those right now who are wrestling, right now, that are wrestling with that calamity that has happened in their past that they so badly want to just box up and put on the shelf and never look at again. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you give them the strength to open that box with a counselor, with a friend, with a mentor, with someone they trust, to process through it and to find freedom and to grow and to see flourishing happen. And Father, maybe those right now who are maybe in just the shell shock of a recent calamity, would you remind them that you created it because you're for them? Not against them, not wanting to crush them, not wanting to punish them. Father, our punishment was, was taken care of on the cross 2,000 years ago. Anything that comes into our life now is for us, for growth and flourishing. Father, would you help us to trust, to believe that God, you orchestrate history, that you create calamity but that you have accomplished salvation in Jesus for us and that you shower it down. Would we, O 